Okay, thank you. I hope somebody does. <laughs> My wife's been trying for many, many years. <laughs> so, uh, three, I want to show you this picture for three things. First of all, it's 9-11, right? So I want to remember it. But that van, isn't that cool van? Uh, that's Sharon's brother. He has four Volkswagen vans of each of different decades then. And he has a friend who was an artist professionally, he painted murals for the Smithsonian. Said, I've always wanted to paint a, uh, a van, do an art van then. So Richard patched this one up. It was rusty. Richard patched it up and painted the entire thing white. And then his friend um, painted it for him. Can you see the scene that's on the, can you see what's on there? That's the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? So then on the other side of that van, he has a scene that's the Garden of Eden. And on the front, he has a, a artist interpretation of the crucifixion. So we're talking about apologetics. How about this for a tool for apologetics, right? So he goes down to Ocean City. He's got his canoe on the top there. That's him sitting in the driver's seat. Uh, he goes down to Ocean City one or two weeks every summer to camp with his with his wife then, and everybody's always asking him about the van, so he has this handout that he just gives them with the pictures and the explanations, and he's able to share the gospel by driving his 1970s van Volkswagen camper. So that's pretty cool, huh? How about that for sharing the gospel, way for sharing the gospel? And um, <clears throat> he's also the guy who wrote the commentary on Revelation, that I, we mentioned before, so that's kind of fitting. Here he is in his Revelation van, at least one side showing that. So anyway, and I didn't, well, I became a Christian at my senior year of Western Maryland College right before I left the college. That's where I met Sharon. She was one of the believers praying for these unbelievers to come, and I was one of those unbelievers that came. But I didn't know this until last summer. Honest, it's been since 1976. I didn't know this. The guy who started that Bible study was Richard, Sharon's brother. Isn't that cool? He started this evangelistic Bible study that I went to and became a believer, and I didn't know he'd started it till, till this past, uh, till just we were talking this past summer. I was just floored. Then, yeah, may I? Is that on? Is this on now? Yeah. Okay, Whew, I'm free. <coughs> cool. Um, yeah. Anyway, so the chapter today is asking why is the universe fine-tuned for life? And uh, folks have always looked at the creation and known that there is a creator, not the God that we know, but they've always argued that there is a creator. It had to come from somewhere. It, nothing doesn't, everything doesn't pop out of nothing, you know, never did. Uh, so just some cool pictures of space from the recently deployed uh, James Webb Space Telescope, the successor to Hubble that gives better images, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. <coughs> cool stuff. Looks like you need to dust though, cobwebs. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so Plato wrote, the order of the motion of the stars and all things occurring occur under the dominion of the mind which ordered the universe. So he's arguing for a theistic worldview that, that uh, 
that something had to have made it. Uh, when you're doing apologetics, if people are ready to hear the gospel, you give them the gospel. And Annie Hall just amazes me. She asked me, sent a, a message to me uh, yesterday saying, um, is anybody talking about how you actually lead people to the Lord uh, during this series? And I, uh, I said, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, but she had just evidently led somebody else to the Lord. She, I don't know if you'd know her, but you need to talk to her. It's just amazing. She has these healthcare workers come in and they tell them her problems and she leads them to the Lord. It's, it's amazing. You know, that's not my story, but it is for her. It's happened multiple times, you know. Well, I get people who are more, nah, you know, and then they don't even believe Jesus exists uh, or he was God. So you have to back up and do that. But there are people who don't even believe that God exists. So the series we're going through now, the section we're going through now is to argue simply that a creator must exist. We're not yet arguing for Jesus Christ as being the Savior. That comes later in this series, and that comes later in this book. But right now, we're just saying, does God exist? So the Kalam cosmological argument, the argument before that, those are just uh, arguments for the person who's like way back on the scale that says, I don't even know if God exists, you know, if any God exists, or I don't think God exists. So, so here you have people looking at the universe and saying, yeah, there must be a God there. Aristotle, thus when they would, uh, people coming out of the cave to see the world, suddenly gain sight of the earth, sea, and the sky, most certainly they would have judged both that there exists gods and that all these marvelous works are the handiwork of the gods. People seeing the creation for the first time. Uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out in, throughout all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man running its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And Romans 1.19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So, introduction the heavens people know by looking at them that there is a god you know it doesn't give them all the way of salvation that comes later in the discussion with them but if they're even just wondering if there's a god then these, these arguments were meant to help them so what is apologetics just to go back and review what's the word sound like the word apologetics sounds like apology right right i'm sorry i'm a christian I really don't want to be a Christian, but I had to do it. Uh, I'll, I'll get better, I hope. You know? Well, no, it doesn't mean... I'm sorry. It doesn't mean you're apologizing for the faith. It is a defense of the faith. It is giving people reasons for the hope that lies within them. First Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honor Christ. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense 
to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Reason for the hope. That was Denny's uh, lecture series that he had special guests coming in to, uh, to give us reasoning for, what, for Christianity and its truth. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's not being defensive. That's not what we mean by make a defense, you know. It's not being argumentative. It's none of that. It's, you know, we do it in the character we should, as David was talking about. You know, pursue, pursue gentleness and respect, but it's giving people reasons. And why do we need to do that? Well, obviously, we've been talking about to help unbelievers come to faith. If they don't know if God exists, we start there, you know. Wherever they are along the spectrum, we start there. Annie just has the blessing by God of being people who are just right there, and she leads them, and they make a decision. <laughs> you know, I wish to God I would like that, and but I'm not. But she can do it, and it's just amazing to me that she can do that. But there's a second reason, and that is we have times of doubt. You know, is this really true? You know, is this really true? Am I believing the stuff that I've heard, you know? And so during the dark times of our soul, uh, we... Uh, we can remind ourselves, no, this is true. I, I, I know it up here. Emotionally, I might be having some questions now, but if you go back to, as Steve Brown said, never forget in the dark what you know in the light. If you go back to what you know in the light, the reasons for our hope, then that helps us get through those dark times that we'll all have, we'll each have then. Okay, so the creation has always pointed people to the creator. And so this is an argument today for the existence of a creator. And again, we're going through William Lane Craig's book On Guard. The handout that I gave you, he has an argument map at the end of each chapter to show you his logic. I think he probably developed this first as an outline and then went through it and explains the material in each chapter. So uh, if you get the book, you'll see that there's one of these argument maps at the end of each chapter then. So here's William Lane Craig, and he said, I wrote this book, and a high schooler should be able to access it. So um, there you go. And well, I wrote this as a college text. Here's the next level up, and he has another level up that I guess is really used in colleges then. But I don't know about you, but I found philosophy hard in my mind. I took philosophy as a sophomore in college, and it hit me like, what in the world is going on? I, I had never heard any of this kind of logic or thinking before, and I couldn't understand it. And to this day, I still struggle with reading Craig's book, even the simpler one he says is for a high school. It's like, okay, <laughs> I want to be that high school student, but I'm not there in my life yet. You know, here's me having a hard time with uh, <coughs> philosophy for dummies. It's actually a very good book. The first edition, they've redone it, and it's been written. It was written by a guy at Notre Dame. It's really a very good book. But there are chapters in there where I just say, have to scratch my head and say, I cannot understand this. You know, I just, philosophy has just always been hard for me. On the other hand, some people have, had an easy time, 
and just understand this easily. So if you have a hard time understanding the book when you read it, well, you're not alone. You know, come to me and we'll talk about it. And, but it, philosophy is not hard for everybody then. Did he say 12? Did he say, he said he, I thought, he, I wrote it down. When he talked at the start, our, when, he, when he started our service, he said, I checked, I wrote it down. I said, I need to use that line. He said, I checked this out of the library when I was 16. And I wrote that down. John, email. He said, you got to tell that some people get it, and then they're me. <laughs> you know, maybe you're like me, and it's just hard. You have to go through it. And one step at a time, a little bit comes. I think I finally got the Kalam understood after 15 years, you know? I think I kind of know it then. So when you model nature then, here's a guy who I've been watching recently who models railroads and cities. And this guy is a phenomenal artist, and I love watching his videos, and I love watching how he models nature. So you've got the real world, and then here you have this model, his model, that's meant to simulate the real world. Well, that's how scientists model things as well. You observe a phenomenon like Newton observing an apple drop, whether that happened or not is not the issue here, but you observe it and then mathematics are used to describe it. So there's an equation that maybe some of you had in high school, maybe some of you had in college, maybe some of you never had, that shows gravity and the attraction of any two objects and the force of gravity between them. And then these days with computers, you can spit, put those equations into the computer and then play around with like variables and say, well, what would happen if, and you change a variable. And I learned how to do that in graduate school using computers to simulate ecological systems and the flow of energy through, through ecosystems. And that's what I did my dissertation on, modeling sycamore trees. Um, Anyway, so here's the equation. Force, the force of gravity is equal to G times M1 and M2. What, what are M1 and M2? The mass of the two objects divided by R squared. What's R? Yeah, the distance between them. So you take the distance between them, the radius, and you square it and you can calculate the attraction of me to that chair and that chair to me. Uh, so, these guys are variables. Variables vary, right? They can change. That has a different mass than I have a mass. If I'm calculating the attraction of the, this flower bouquet to me, that has a less mass than the chair, so the force of gravity between us will be less, right? And G is a constant. Constants don't, they're constant, right? That's why they're called constant. They don't change. And here's the value of G. There, 6.674 times 10 to the minus 11th meters cubed per kilogram second squared. Doesn't matter that we remember that, but that's G. And in this chapter, we're going to talk about uh, constants, the constants of nature, and that's one of the constants of nature. Everybody following so long? Long? Okay, so far? Okay, so what do we mean by the universe is fine-tuned for life? It means that the constants, that's what we were talking about, and quantities of the universe must fall into an extraordinary, extraordinarily narrow range for the universe to be life-permitting. 
Okay, so G has to be very, very, very precise. Change G a little bit, and the universe, when it was created, would have just expanded forever, and there wouldn't have been any life. There wouldn't have been any, well, there's a universe, but there wouldn't be any planets or anything. It would just have particles accelerating forever. Increase G a little bit, when the universe is created, it would have stopped and collapsed back on itself. There would be a universe, but it'd be this big, hot, dense ball. So G has to be very, very precise to get the universe that we have now. So constants, example G, and quantities. Quantities are things like the amount of disorder in the universe, entropy. How many of you heard the word entropy? It's a measure of randomness. And the universe had to be exceedingly orderly at the beginning, and then it, it grew from there when God created it. And, uh, yeah. So how much entropy is there in the universe from the beginning then? Okay, so the constants and quantities must fall into this exceedingly, extraordinarily narrow range for the universe to be life-permitting. If they were any different, we wouldn't have a life-permitting universe. Uh, so one in a thousand chances, one to one thousand, you could see, the, or one times ten to the third. That's one in a thousand, right? One in a million, uh, a million is one to a million, or that's ten to the sixth, right? That's a million. Ten, a one with six zeros after it. A billion is one to that number, or written one to ten to the ninth, a one with nine zeros after it. Everybody following along so far? Okay, so if G were to change one in times 10 to the 100th, life would not be possible. If you increase G a little bit, how much? A one with a hundred zeros after it. If you increase G that amount, the universe would have expanded forever. If you decrease it that amount, the universe would have collapsed in on itself. So does everybody understand what we mean by fine-tuning then? You know, and this is well acknowledged by the physicists and the uh, cosmologists, the folks who study the Big Bang and the universe and the origin of the universe then. So if you change entropy of one to the times 10 to the 1200, so put a 1 and add 1,200 zeros after it. You change it one of those units, there wouldn't be a universe. Everybody with me? Okay. So fine-tuning is a neutral term. It doesn't mean there's a God behind it. It just means that it's fine-tuned. That's what the scientists and the cosmologists hold by the term. And by life, they don't mean human life. They mean any life form, a virus, a bacteria. Bacteria are immensely complicated, but viruses, any life form then. Okay, so now all scientists acknowledge that the universe is fine-tuned. So now the question is, why is it fine-tuned? How did it come about that it was fine-tuned? And really, you only, we only have three uh, uh, we only have three options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due either to physical necessity, chance, 
or design. Would you read this with me? This is the first premise. Would you read this with me? The fine-tuning of the universe is due either physical necessity, chance, or design. Okay. Premise two. It is not due to physical necessity or chance. Would you read that with me? It is not due to physical necessity or chance. What's the obvious conclusion? It's due to? Okay, there, read it with me, please. Therefore, it is due to design. Okay, simple argument, right? I think I can even memorize that with my poor memory then. Okay, the fine-tuning is either due to physical necessity, chance, or design. And we're following through on that handout, you know, starting this is his map, okay? So necessity says the universe had to be life-performing, uh, uh, life-producing. Uh, Sorry, wrong word. The universe had to produce life. There's, it's impossible to have a universe that doesn't have life. That's the claim. Chance says we just got lucky. We're here, so obviously the universe produced life. And then design, well, that's our hypothesis, that it was made by a designer, and it's our case when we talk with others that God was the designer then. Okay, so we've already talked about fine-tuning is a well-established scientific fact. The cosmologists, the mostly mathematicians, the, the folks who study this stuff agree on it. And uh, just an example to show you, well, do they really agree? Well, I just pulled up a Wikipedia page, and you can't read any of that. But here are one, two, three, four, five, six, six constants or quantities that they all acknowledge are, are fine-tuned. If you change any one of these on the dial, you don't get a universe, or you don't get a universe that's life-sustaining. Okay, everybody following with me then? Okay. So yeah, Oliver Wendell Jones, Bloom County, right? Drop, this is, who knows who this guy is? Opus, how many of you know Opus? Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, here's Opus, dropped. My pistachio nut ice cream dropped on my toe. Arg! I'm so blasted unlucky. And here comes the scientist computer guru, Oliver Wendell Jones then. Unlucky, you think you're unlucky? Statistically speaking, there was only one in four million chance that the universe didn't collapse back upon itself after the Big Bang. It's actually much, much higher than that. But he's a cartoonist, you know, so we give him some credit, right? Okay, not to mention one in a 47 billion chance that the solar system ever formed that could produce a planet that could sustain life. And about a one in six million chance the chance would produce tubby, flightless waterfowl named penguins. And one in two billion chance that your folks ever met fell in love and gave birth to you. In all, all in all, statistically speaking, I say there's about a one in 33 zillion chance that you'd be unbelievably, unbelievably lucky enough just to be here alive and standing here with pistachio nut ice cream on your feet. Statistically speaking, there's about a one in one chance that you'd be wearing that cone in the last frame. <laughs> <laughs> It's even in the comics, right? I mean, fine-tuning is a fact. Nobody, nobody disagrees that fine-tuning is a fact then. Okay, so those are the only options then. Either the universe is life-supporting because it had to be, or because we just got lucky, or because there was a designer behind it. Okay, premise two, it's not due to physical necessity or chance. So let's look at the options there. Did the universe had 
that it had to have formed life. Well, no, it didn't have to have formed life then. Uh, the con first of all, these constants like G and, and quantities, the amount of entropy, they're independent of the laws. So you saw the equation for gravity, right? The equation for gravity is still valid if you change G. The value of G doesn't determine the shape of the formula. It's still mass one times mass two over radius squared, right? And G could take different values, but the overall equation has to stay the same. So these constants and quantities are independent of the mathematics then. And uh, there could be universes with the same laws, but with different constants. So again, if you had gravity just a little higher, the law of gravity would still work, the formula would still be the work, but if it was a little less, if G was a little less, the, the universe would have expanded forever. You have a universe, but it's not life permitting. So you can have universes that are not life permitting. That's what this is saying. Uh, and then a theory of everything will, uh, will, um, will explain everything. A long time ago when I was in graduate school, I went to talk, a friend was into cosmology and said, you have to come listen to this guy, Alan Guth. He's one of the founders. He's one of the guys who does cosmology and the origin of the universe stuff. And back then it was called a grand unified theory. Have any of you heard the term grand unified theory? Well, now it's called a theory of everything instead of grand unified theory. How many of you, have any of you heard of strings, string theory, super string, super string theory? Well, string theory is to explain these forces. There has to be 10 dimensions in the universe. We know four, right? Length, width, depth, and time. Well, the physicists and the mathematicians, these folks say, for string theory to be true, you have to have 10 dimensions. And then for super string theory to be true, to be a, you have to, the, the universe has to have 11 dimensions. So that's, what, that's where the hope is among these cosmologists. They know that it's finely designed, but they don't like the implication that there's a creator behind it. You with me? hundred years ago, Einstein published his equations and it predicted that the universe had a beginning. A lot of physicists didn't like that implication then. Read the book by Robert Jastrow, God and the Astronomers. It tells you all about then, about 30, 40 years old now. But it's a really good book, quick read then. So they've been coming up with alternate theories to explain away design. And a theory of everything is one way to explain away design. We don't need a designer because we have superstring theory. Superstring theory is a theory of everything. Are you following along with that? Okay. So theory of everything, again, Wikipedia, hypothetical physical concept. Hypothetical, singular, all-encompassing theoretical framework of physics that fully explains and links together all aspects of the universe. Finding a theory of everything is one of the major unsolved problems of physics. String theory and M theory have been proposed as theories of everything then. Okay, so string theory doesn't explain everything. String theory, these forces that, that physicists talk about, right? Electricity and magnetism. Everybody knows electricity and, ma and magnetism, right? Okay, so Maxwell united those two. Wherever you have electricity, you have a magnetic field. And where you have a magnet, you have electricity. 
They weren't two forces, they were one. He united these two to say they're really one. Strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, anybody have heard of those? So strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, and electromagnetism have all been united under this field called quantum mechanics. Have any of you heard the term quantum mechanics? But the fourth force of nature is gravity, and gravity deals with the real big stuff. These other things deal with the, the real small stuff. So that's what a theory of everything is doing. It's trying to unite these three that they have united with this one outlier that they can't unite these two together yet. So string theory, you, you can unite them, maybe, if you have 10 dimensions. And M theory, if you have 11 dimensions, you might be able to unite these four forces. So string theory doesn't unite everything. It doesn't tell you about the beginning. All string theory does, all string theory does, is try to unite these four forces. Okay, so bottom line is a theory of everything, M theory, actually predicts 10 to the 500th possible universes. See, the way to get around, how many of you have heard of uh, the multiverse? So that's what we're talking about. You know, how do we avoid the implication that God made our universe? You say, well, yeah, it's really improbable that, uh, that our universe would come about by time and chance. It's really because there's no time. <laughs> and I guess there's no chance if there's no time or anything. So they're saying, well, but if we have billions is way too small, right? A one with 500 zeros in it. If we have that many universes, then certainly one of them must be life-supporting, Right? So you get around God by saying, well, there are this huge number of universes and we just got lucky then. Well, okay, so no, you got one in 10 to the 500th. No, 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 no. It's, you don't get a, a universe by necessity or by chance that's, uh, that's formed for life. So the probability of a life-supporting universe popping into existence by chance is just infinitesimally small. It's not going to happen. You know, and uh, again, people are pushing this possibility because they they know that the physics points to a creator. Big Bang had a big banger, as Greg Kokel says. Simply then, okay, can't be due to chance, but they say, well, obviously we're here, so it can be due to chance, right? We're here. I know this stuff is really, this, it's hard to follow along. That's what I said. It took me two weeks of working on this before I got Hawley's arguments down. So just, just hang in there with me then. Body universe probably won't be life permitting. Ah, but we can only observe observable universes. So we shouldn't expect that there are universes out there. We should expect that there are universes out there we can't see. Because we can only see the observable universes we can't see all these others. Uh, well, no, yeah, that, but that doesn't explain why it's here. That just says, okay, there might be, you're just saying there may be others, but it doesn't explain why ours is here. And so the multiverse posits an infinite number of universes, and we are under them. We, we are just one of them. Uh, 
Now, but here you come back and say, yeah, but you're not explaining fine-tuning. That doesn't explain why this one came about. And there are good reasons to reject the multiverse because if even if a multiverse had a beginning, it had to have, this is philosophy and this stuff's so hard. Even if, even if the multiverse had a beginning, you can't have an infinite number of universes because you have not had an infinite amount of time to generate all those universes. Does that make sense? You have to have an infinite number and a universe generator. You had Time has to be eternal in the past to generate an eternal number of universes today. But time can't be eternal in the past. That's Craig talks about in the Kalam. So you have to have a finite number of universes. You can't have, we don't have a finite amount of universes. Oh, and then also, what's more, what's more probable, do you think? An entire universe to pop into existence out of nothing or a solar system to pop into chance out of nothing? Which is more probable? The solar system, right? The solar system is far less complex. Which is more probable, a solar system popping into place or a single planet popping into place? The single planet. Which is more probable, a single planet popping into place or a single mind brain popping into place? Just a brain popping into place. The universe, uh, a, a, a brain popping into existence out of nowhere. And that's called Boltzmann brain after this guy who says it might, be more, it might be more likely for a single brain to spontaneously form in a void complete with the memory of having existed on our universe rather than for the entire universe to come out. So if things are popping into existence, why did the universe pop into existence? Why not a single brain? And the brain can, this is now Eastern thought to me, envision an entire universe. So the universe is an illusion of a single brain. And it's more likely the brain will pop into existence uncaused than it is a universe will pop into existence uncaused. Did that sentence make sense? Okay, so I created a graphic showing how this could come about. So here you have, I had space up there, but that's the universe. So I had to take out my background and say, no, we're talking about nothing here. You know, and then all of a sudden, a brain pops into existence, right? And then it pops out of existence. And then another brain pops into existence with a complete illusion of seeing a whole universe. And it pops out of existence. And another brain pops into existence. And then it pops out of existence again. And then another real big brain pops into existence. <laughs> What do you say? I didn't hear what he said. <laughs> okay, so does the universe have to be? Uh, uh, is the is the is the fine tuning of the of the universe explained by the fact that it had to be fine tuned? No. Is it by chance? No. The, the odds are too small. 
then what's the only conclusion then? The universe was designed. <clears throat> Follows from the first and second premise. So then some people say, Richard Dawkins, well, who designed the designer? You know, if you have a designer, well, that's just silly. You don't need it. As Craig says, you don't need an explanation of the explanation for it to be the explanation. Otherwise, you're into an infinite regress and saying, well, what explained the exp explanation of the explanation? You need, you know, that's just silly. If you can explain something, you don't need an explanation as to why that explanation came about. So that's just silly then. Uh, a mind is simpler than the universe. It's, it's more rational to say a mind would pop into the existence than a universe would pop into the existence. So the fine-tuning of the universe is either due to physical necessity, chance, or design. Those are the only options. It's not due to physical necessity or chance. Uh, the universe doesn't have to be life-permitting. Uh, and the probability that it a universe would pop into existence that's, that's life-permitting is too small. That's why we have all this evidence for design. Therefore, uh, it, therefore, it's due to design. There we go. Would you read this with me one more time? Premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Premise two, it's not due to physical necessity or chance. Therefore, it's due to design. Okay, following logically. The mighty, humanistic, rationalistic, atheist scientist prepares to give himself over to the annual springtime moment of wild abandon. The universe is a little too darn orderly to be just a big accident. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I probably should stop here. If you go to YouTube, here's a video that I just was too verbose like I usually am. Uh, if you go, this is the, Craig has a whole series of really helpful videos. And he can do in eight minutes on this one what it took me 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes to do then. And he can show prettier pictures because he has an art team working with him. And he's a, he's, he's a bigger brain than I. <laughs> so what's that? But he doesn't have a picture of one. There you go. There you go. That's right. Okay, so yeah, just a few last comments then. Uh, uh, don't think you have to convert somebody in your first conversation of talking with someone about God. I really like Greg Kokel. That, well, okay, John, I'm getting ahead of myself. John 4.36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here this saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Annie is one who can reap. She just goes in, and these people come in to help her physically, and she can lead them to Christ. You know, I just am a different personality. You know, if I can just put a pebble in somebody's shoes and get them thinking about God somewhere, you know, so... Pick an argument that you like. The three that I like a lot are chapter two that says, without God, life has no meaning, value, or purpose. I get a lot of mileage out of that one because people assume all kinds of things and you tell them, hey, look, when you're dead, it won't matter. The universe is going to die a heat death. doesn't matter what you do now. You think you're acting good. People are always telling 
other people on Facebook how, or on comics, that's where I see these things a lot. They're always telling people how good they are. I'm basically a good person. Really? <laughs> and the Kalam argument, I like that one because where did the universe come from? It's, you know, Big Bang needs a Big Banger. And the moral argument that I think is next week or sometime soon here, we're doing the moral, moral argument, you know. If you're saying things are good and bad, you, you're talking about subjective ethics, but I'm talking about in the big picture. I don't care what you, well, I mean, that's not what I meant, but, you know, we're not concerned with what you individually think. We're, we're concerned with what's true about the universe, what's, what's good and what's bad in the universe. So people are always making moral claims. You know, the kids used to walk around. If What did that T-shirt say? If, if, if it's all relative, I'll take your wallet. Uh, Coco says, it's our job to put a pebble in their shoe. So even though we can't do everything, even though, you know, I don't have the brain of Craig or Josh or Wendell, you know, there's these, these, they just outthink me then. We can do something. If you know this, it'll help me in the dark times, but I do find that as I'm studying these, I can use them a little bit. So here's an example of something that happened. I like watching the comics, and certain comics, God always comes up, you know? So, Pearls Before Swine. Hey, pig, this is my friend Captain Tony. He salvages wrecks. I'll pay any price. For you to salvage me, I'm a wreck. Boat wrecks. Surely you can help the living. Wow. I can't let that one go. You know? So I can put a comment. Hey, pig, the price was already paid for your salvation, and it was costly. I don't know. Maybe you'd come up with something better, more clever to say, but... For some reason, I can, I can say, just put little snippets in there to get them thinking about God, you know? And 20 minutes later, somebody already has a heart up there and other people are reading the comment and I can't talk to people like Annie can. I'm, a, I'm an introvert, you know? But I can do this kind of stuff in a gentle and persuasive way. Not to be pugnacious, not to be argumentative, not to be unkind, just to put a pebble in their shoe to get them thinking. Thanks. Well, that was not only informative, but it was also fun. So good stuff, John. And um, hopefully you're benefiting from the series on apologetics. That there's a lot of useful information there. Even if you weren't able to stay track with all the formulas and science, you get a pretty well Hopefully you got a pretty, pretty good gist of the points that were being made there. Next week, Nate, you have the moral argument. You'll be all set to go. Yep. 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 That's what I like to hear. All right. So let's stand. And um, I will dismiss you with uh, this favorite benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You are dismissed. Go in Christ's name. Enjoy each other and serve each other in love.